Topic of our Dhamma talk this evening is anatta. And uh, let us start uh, with uh, a stanza from the 16th chapter of the Visuddhimagga, which states, Mere suffering exists, no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. Nibbana is, but not the man or woman that enters it. The path is, but no traveler on it is seen. Now, hearing this sadness stanza for the first time, there will surely be certain aspects that are hard to relate to. In the course of Fatna, this sudden discourse, let us together, especially at the beginning, explore how the self manifests, how we actually experience this, and there are plenty of Fatna aspects to be uh, mentioned here. And then having done you know, this, how through the mindfulness satna meditation practice, that uh, uh, notion of a self at least uh, gets put into uh, question. And we shall then go on you know, to you know, take a look at satna the textual material you know, that is there, so various passages given you know, by you know, the Buddha with or passages that contain you know, some of the Buddha's statements on anatta. In Satna, by the end of Satna, the discourse, hopefully uh, this Satna initial a stanza will make some more sense. The sense of Fatna self seems to be very strongly, firmly established in our stream of Fatna consciousness. Now, there is Satna, the identification with various things, such as one's age, one's Satna gender, or one's ability, or uh, one's profession. Can you think of other aspects that certain we might uh, identify with? Yes, ethnicity, possessions, physical characteristics, almost anything. Ah, you're mentioning already quite a number. And one being a mother, 
one might identify with that sadness status of being a mother, and if that gets suddenly threatened, then what's a tragedy? Now, before we go into further aspects of identification, and possessions is indeed one of those, let us briefly explore what certainly happens to our sense of self when we get praised. What happens? Yes, Kim? What happens to our sense of self when, this, you know, when we get praised? It gets stronger. And on the other hand, when we get blamed for this or that, and yeah, then what happens to that sense of self? <coughs> Obviously. It gets stronger as well. <laughs> How is that? Well, usually um, when, there's, when there's blame, um, then there's inner like argumentation, recrimination, all these are just facets of the self uh-huh. um, reifying itself in, in contrast to the blame. Well, that's a good, certainly a good point. Uh, but you know, when we get blamed, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, that's an, a direct attack to our you know, sense of self. And at least for a little bit, the self uh, gets a bit weakened. And then uh, there is uh, all of what certainly you've said, you know, trying to you know, justify what's, uh, what we've done and so on. Now, Again, in the presence of honor and certain dishonor, there will be an impact on the self when we are we get certain honored in one way or another. Then this boosts our sense of self. But on the other hand, in the case of dishonor, this might weaken again our sense of self. Again. When we lose something, let's say uh, property or friends, family, a family member, then uh, that certainly too has an impact on our sense of self. On the other hand, certainly when we're successful, where we gain something, then this too will strengthen our sense of self. Now, identification can happen with regards to our possessions, material possessions, or maybe our group of friends who are important certain to us. And around certain possessions, we or people, we do not want to lose them because they make uh, up what certain we are. Can you think of other aspects that we might certainly be identifying with.
careers, roles, yes? Our practice, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, so, um, when the practice is going really well, you know, then you know, the sense of self uh, uh, strengthens. And, uh, uh, or in which sense uh, did you mean it? In which sense? That we can we can take personally how we feel our practice is going. Ah, uh-huh. or the very fact that we are a meditator. Uh, no. Uh, this is great. Now, there could also be an identification with our views, our opinions, especially our world views. And if someone comes and dare attack certain one of our pet views, then this may have terrible consequences. We perceive it as an attack onto our self. From a Buddhist point of view, there could be identification with one's body, in particular uh, aspects such as, let's say, the shape of one's body, whether it's well-shaped or not, the strength of it, the health of it, the youth of it, and certainly the flexibility of it. There could certainly further be an identification with our feelings and certainly so placing much importance on our feelings and certainly taking our feelings as an indicator for uh, decisions or something to base our uh, decisions on. Some might identify with their perceptions, certainly thinking highly of how they perceive the world, yet others might identify with uh, some one or the other of the mental states and mental states or mental qualities. So if one happens to be a very compassionate person, then there might be a strong identification with that very compassion. Or someone who is extremely intelligent will identify with that very intelligence, thinking that this is what makes up myself.
or finally there could be an identification with one's sudden consciousness, the way one is suddenly conscious. Now, as human beings, we still do more than just identifying with this art. You know, that we have this further pattern of being interested in becoming something or becoming something or somebody. So this satna then go, goes along with satna, some uh, goal that uh, we're setting ourselves and satna then uh, we're working uh, towards that. So let's say uh, wanting uh, to become an expert meditator or wanting uh, to become an expert, uh, uh, what satna? an expert analyst or you know, whatever it else it might certainly be. related to the self is that certain time and again we will try to control especially in the meditation practice our experiences but even in life in general we want to be in control of our life and it's us who's taking the major decisions Now, as you will surely be aware, the French, the famous French philosopher René Descartes did coin the following sentence, cogito ergo sum, in the Latin language, which means, I think, therefore, I am. And obviously, and René Descartes had uh, quite an influence at his time and even later. And so um, that way of thinking then has had its certain impact. So this certain then shows us that even we can even identify with our 
You're thinking the way we think, the thoughts we think, the logic of our thinking, and so on. Let us briefly explore the notions of a self as put forward in different religions or philosophical systems. So in Christianity, the self or soul is defined as the immaterial essence of an individual life. Or the self has been defined as the essential person distinct from others. The Buddha at certain his time has picked up certain views of a self held certain by others, by heretics, and certainly sometimes taken those views and certainly then elaborated on them often and of course certainly defeated them. So one such case is certainly given in the first volume of the Majjhima Nikaya, section 136-37, where it says, Here someone's view is this, this is self, this is the world, after death I shall be permanent, everlasting. Then that person hears the true doctrine for the exhaustion of craving, for cessation, for extinction, for Nibbana. Then one thinks, so I shall be annihilated, so I shall be lost, so I shall be no more. And as a uh, result of holding such a view, then one sorrows and laments. That is how there's anguish about what is non-existent in oneself. Or another view that was certainly held at the time of the Buddha is that the soul and the body are the same. The self and the body are the same. The materialist schools at the time of the Buddha rejected all immaterial conceptions of a self or soul and according to them a human individual was just uh, uh, like an automaton or like a robot functioning according to the dictates of matter. Now, according to you know, the Chandogya Upanishad, <coughs> there the Atman, the self or soul, is certainly described in various ways, such as being free from death, you know, so in other words, eternal, free from 
sorrow we soak and having real thoughts satyam sankalpa and after death the soul has form because it appears in its own form so the notion or one of the qualities of fatna than self or soul was to be eternal everlasting permanent and unchanging and furthermore possessed of bliss and autonomous now at the time of the buddha there uh, exist uh, there were the jainas and they still uh, exist and to them the soul is uh, identified certainly uh, with life it is said to be finite and uh, um, it is said to have variable though definite size and weight so to have a definite size and weight means that certainly the soul in an elephant is much bigger than the soul in an ant The Jainas also hold the view that it's not only human beings that have souls, but also everything else in the universe. Like trees are believed to have a soul, etc. Contemporary to you know, the Buddha were also the Ajivakas, and uh, they were of you know, the opinion that Satna you know, the soul had a particular you know, shape, namely that it was octagonal or globular, in 500 yojanas in extent. And on top of that, it was considered you know, to be blue in color. So in your meditation practice, have you found anything globular, octog octog octagonal <coughs> or globular in uh, your uh, experiences that would come close to a self? Yes, no? Not written. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> You're still trying. <laughs> now, summarizing what has been said so far, the soul or the self can be defined as a principle of thought and action in human beings or that which thinks which wills and feels that 
which knows and sees, and also that which appropriates and owns. Generally speaking, it is conceived as a perdurable entity, the permanent unchanging factor within the concrete personality. So if everything else changes, at least that sense of or that self or soul is certainly you know, thought to remain constant. It is also said to be the subject of um, all consciousness, spiritual experience. Some hold the view that that self or soul is independent of the body, immaterial and eternal. Now, let us assume the existence of a self. But within based on this assumption start out suddenly with our meditation practice and suddenly we observe the formations as they naturally arise then what happens we notice what they shift and change and pass away. Well, we'll see that, yes. But even prior to this, even prior to this, suddenly we will make a very simple but suddenly very important discovery. So as we keep observing, or as we keep following the meditation instructions and we keep observing whatever predominant uh, object comes along. So you know, there will be you know, the rising, falling movement of the abdomen. You now there will be pains and aches and hardness and stiffness, heat and cold movements of the body. There will be you know, thinking, you know, memories. There will be joy, happiness, restlessness, um, sudden ill will, aversion, etc., etc. Eventually, we will realize that they're just those physical and mental formations going on, right? And uh, at least at times, there uh, is a, you know, there's no sense of, uh, of a self. So at the very outset of our practice, what we do is an analysis of what is actually happening in the body and the mind. Just taking stock of what is going on. And based on this analysis, we can we then already see to some extent that this notion of a self is somewhat not as 
permanent and uh, uh, everlasting as thought of or as assumed. So we will experience you know, things you know, such as uh, the four you know, great elements, so you know, the earth element, you know, the water element, the you know, wind you know, element, and you know, fire you know, element. We also will um, come you know, to you know, see for ourselves you know, this certain process of uh, uh, let's say a visible um, object being there, and suddenly uh, then the eyes uh, uh, being uh, there, and suddenly uh, that's uh, leading uh, to the arising of seeing consciousness, and the three of those coming into contact, um, uh, then uh, being known as sudden uh, contact fasa, or. Uh, Upon experiencing the flavor of or the taste of an object, the feeling uh, aspect of the mind uh, as a mental factor becomes ob obvious. When there's the perceiving of the object, uh, we uh, know this is perception, and so on and so forth. So, understanding that there is no entity of any kind that can be or should be treated as an I or uh, mine, one uh, then um, uh, comes to have um, or, or then, experiences what is called the purification of view, deity, visuddhi, in the Pali scriptural language. Now, with a further deepening of our meditation practice, we gradually and in a very direct, certain manner, notice how one or how certain conditions are there, and certainly they lead to a certain result. So, if it's very hot, then the heat plus certainly the humidity then contribute to the sweating cause, the sweating, the perspiration of the body to take place. Now, in this certain particular process, is there any self to be found? Is it the self that uh, initiates the perspiration? Let me sweat. Let the body sweat. It's not the case at all. Or 
would certainly you say that maybe some supreme being uh, is in control. So let us assume, as in a certain religious certain tradition, that there is such a supreme being, and that supreme being has an influence and controls the individual soul. So the supreme being gives orders to the individual self or soul, and Satna then tells Satna that individual self to cause perspiration to start. Does it work that way? Deborah, what would you say? No? no? Absolutely not. Now, our careful examination of reality, of what is going on in the meditation practice, upon seeing how certain factors, certain conditions lead to the arising of a a certain result may help, or for sure, will help to dispel yet another wrongful view. Namely, that all formations are occurring in a haphazard matter. So, without certainly any uh, cause. Now, that too is certainly easy to dispel. When one takes a closer look at what is happening in the walking practice, there is the desire, let's say, having stood upright for quite some time, then eventually the desire, the intention to start walking arises, and that then gets followed by the actual physical process of walking. So it would be wrong to assume that the walking happens in a haphazard manner. So again, in all of this, there is not much room for the notion of a self. Now, the purification of Fatna, the mind, that takes place with this kind of an understanding, is known as the purification by overcoming doubt. Kanka Vitarana Visuddhi in the Pali scriptural language. Now, with this, the attack on the notion of a self, assumed notion of an existing self, 
continues. And keep in mind one of the assumed qualities of a self is that it is permanent. However, when we carefully inspect the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, when we carefully expect our feelings, or even something like our of thinking, etc., we see what? We find what? Change. We find change. That's it. We find change, we find uh, that certain of those formations are not as permanent, not as constant as assumed. But rather they are impermanent. And they can change rather quickly you know, from one moment to another. So that certain very discovery that formations that we tend to identify with, that these certain formations are subject to impermanence, that certain once again will weaken our sense of a permanent, perdurable self. So as we have footness seen at the outset of footness, this Satna dog, we tend to identify with a great variety of things. So we might identify with our body, with the health of it, and the youth of it, and the beauty of it, etc. However, when those certain things change, then that identification becomes questionable. So if we're no longer, if earlier on we enjoyed certain good health and certain physical strength, and now this is not the case anymore, obviously that certainly affects certainly the sense of self. By the way of inference, one can then assume what certain is true in the present moment, what is true for presently arising uh, formations, will also have been true in the past, and certain will be true for the formations to arise in the future. As human beings, we tend to prefer stability. So stability of our life, stability of uh, our you know, family, stability of uh, just events in general. And we keep uh, seeing change, then you know, this is certainly uh, then experienced as what? As loss, what else? 
dukkha. That's it. And loss is part of it. So as dukkha, as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. So it's unsatisfactory that things are happening that way. We want um, the rising movement of the abdomen to remain the same so that it's easy to observe it. However, the rising movement of the abdomen will not do us this favor and will keep changing. And suddenly uh, that uh, uh, may be uh, to our uh, dismay. So that's suddenly the original interpretation why formations are said to be dukkha Obviously, apart from that, there is also dukkha, dukkha. Yes, so, you know, the uh, dukkha mm, that comes in the form of pains, bodily pains and aches, and the dukkha that comes in the form of unwholesome uh, mental states. And we can even take it a step but no further. There's certainly the um, mere oppression of formations through you know, their constant arising passing and in comparison to you know, Nibbana you know, the very uh, arising the very existence of those formations is certainly considered a form of it's not just considered it can be experienced as a form of you know, suffering Now, with a further exploration of uh, what is going on in this body and mind, when observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, all the other predominant objects, we come to um, make yet a new uh, discovery. If earlier on we had always wanted to influence the rise and fall, to control it. When it was too shallow and uh, difficult to observe, we would deliberately make it more forceful, speed it up, um, make it in a way you know, that uh, uh, it would be easier to observe it. However, there comes a point in the practice where that simply doesn't happen. And eventually the mind gets tired of wanting to get rid of certain physical pains and aches, to get rid of unpleasant certain mental or unwholesome mental states. And with that certainly then comes a certain letting go of this wanting to control and certainly with this you know, then uh, one uh, might experience um, the rising falling movement of the abdomen happening of its own accord. So quite naturally and the same thing then could certainly also be experienced with regard to other predominant objects that come up in the body or in the mind during the sitting meditation. In the walking meditation, at least at times, 
we might notice that suddenly the walking is happening entirely of its own accord. So it's not me doing this, but rather it's just happening. At times, one might suddenly further notice that suddenly formations are hollow. They seem to be hollow. In other words, they are without a solid, a permanent core of a self. Now, in the course of exploring the true reality of physical and sentimental formations, we might discover, as was outlined in the previous Satna Dhamma talk on Monday, the very breaking up of concepts such as the shape or contour of the body. One might notice certain distortions suddenly that are taking place. One might suddenly find that suddenly the form of suddenly the body is not well defined in certain areas. It, um, things seem to be missing, etc. So we can say there is, within the first couple of insight knowledges, a gradual process going on of distortion and the dissolution of the form, the shape, the contour of the body and the various body parts. And as Sutton explained Sutton during the previous demo talk, this is a process that starts out with seeing formations from a conceptual point of view, so conceptual reality, and gradually then going to a point of seeing ultimate reality, what truly exists. Now, if someone has an extremely beautiful body, let's say if someone has, the person has just become a Miss Universe. And this Miss Universe then sets out to um, hears a lot about certain of the benefits of mindfulness practice and then decides to do a retreat. A mindfulness retreat. And Satna subscribes uh, uh, right away to several weeks of practice. Now, when Miss Universe starts Satna seeing her body uh, distorting and uh, the beautiful contour disappearing, breaking up, etc., this uh, might be somewhat what? What, gratifying? Well, it might become somewhat 
annoying or disconcerting what is going on with me. In other words, what is going on with my body with which I identify with. Now, there's still other practical aspects that uh, might certainly lead us to doubt you know, this assumption of a permanent self. So usually, when hearing a sound, we'll say, I am hearing. But a careful observation of what actually is going on will lead us to rectify this statement to what? Yes, Jerry? Hearing is happening. Hearing is happening. There you go. Or there is hearing. The same thing. When seeing, usually we say, I am seeing. But upon a close observation of the seeing process, we notice there is just seeing. And not I am missing. The same thing goes for the remaining sense-stored new processes. Now, on occasion, retreatants can see in a very clear-cut manner, can observe in a very clear-cut manner, this transition from first identifying with an object like a pain, so referring to it as my pain is giving me trouble, and suddenly then in the course of the observation, the attitude towards the object changes, the mental factors suddenly change, and suddenly with this, then it's suddenly just observing a pain, and it's no longer considered as my pain. Or it might go even to the point where one sees the pain as just another sensation. So with this, suddenly then a retreatant might see First, the presence of you know, the notion of self around my pain, then gradually the sense of my pain falls away. The object is seen as just a sensation, and later on, when the pain becomes, let's say, excruciating, the sense of self comes back, and again, it's my pain that becomes intolerable. The same thing could be experienced with regard to uncertain thoughts. If at first suddenly some really fascinating thought suddenly has arisen in the mind, then quickly there will be an identification with it, but upon closer observation, that sudden thought then gets seen as just another thought.
So when you look at all the material that we've put certainly together you know, so far, then uh, would you say it is certainly beneficial, it is fruitful to hold on to you know, the notion of a self, to identify with this or that? Is it fruitful? Not really. The more that we hold on to something, the more we will suffer. And certainly keep in mind, especially around certain views that one is holding, having to defend this view, those certain views is rather a tiring affair. And having to put up with the ups and downs of life, um, gain and uh, loss and certain gain, um, making oneself dependent on these certain things, that is also not a good idea. Now, in the course of certain further practice, as one more and more deeply understands the workings of the self, the mind lets go of it. And certainly there can be moments, if not periods, in one's certain meditation where there is just the object and the observing and knowing mind. And that's all. There is no self that comes into the picture. Upon deeply, more and more deeply, understanding the non-self nature of formations so of the anatta uh, aspect, you know, with this, you know, then the practice matures, and with this, more and more equanimity develops towards sapna formations. This happens when one sees, in particular, the voidness of Fatna formations. Now, ultimately, when the mind is Fatna well-developed, purified of unwholesome mental states, the mind is further uh, strong, the enlightenment factors are present, and certain other necessary conditions are there, then the crossing over from mundane consciousness to supermundane consciousness will take place. And this certain process will happen, or might certainly happen, while contemplating the non-self nature of some object, any object will do, deeply understanding this, and suddenly the mind crosses over. So voidness, sunyata, then can become the door to emancipation, or the door of emancipation. Now, just like in the case uh, no, with uh, 
impermanence around anatta too now there is mention of but now, the perversion of first of all perception through the notion of a self the assumption of an existing self that then influences colors consciousness and suddenly that in turn leads to perversion of views and through doing the practice and time and again seeing this anatta aspect of footnote formations this then will help to rectify those three perversions or distortions of perception of consciousness and of footnote views The Buddha's teachings are revolutionary first and foremost because of this aspect of anatta. So he was certainly referred to as the anatta wadi or wadin. And so, did he have many friends? Well, there were plenty of people who were ready to uh, debate on the existence or non-existence of a self. And on many occasions, you know, the, the Buddha had to explain why you know, formations are non-self. One way of doing this is, as we've seen already, early on in the discourse, you know, through this analysis, this objective analysis of physical and mental formations and checking for oneself whether there is truly a self in all of that. And the answer obviously then is not. The second line of arguing used by you know, the Buddha was because formations occur as processes in a cause-effect relationship, they are not subject to control of a self or some supreme being. Now, furthermore, when we ask ourselves whether this body, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations and consciousness are permanent or impermanent, obviously the answer is impermanent. And certainly then what is impermanent is certainly it's sorrowful or happy. The answer to this you know, then to this question raised by you know, the Buddha obviously is certainly that this is sorrowful. And of what is impermanent, sorrowful, and liable to change, would it be proper to regard it as this is mine, this I am, this uh, uh, is uh, myself? So obviously it's not. A fourth line of argumentation uh, was you know, to assume that that certain self 
is in control, that it is autonomous, and it decides. And so, based on you know, this assumption, one should then be in a position to say, I will never get sick again. And certainly, obviously, reality is different from that. Or, one should be in a position, in, in a, sorry, in a position to say, well, Mm, the self is in control of certain things, so uh, let certain this body remain youthful forever. And again, that is certainly something impossible. So we see you know, that certain of this autonomous condition of the self is certain uh, not a reality. Now, in the second volume of uh, you know, the Samyutanikaya, section sixty-two. The question you know, then is put to you know, the Buddha, what is it that feels? And to you know, this, the answer given was, there is no one who feels, but there is feeling. And likewise, who is it who becomes old and certainly suffers you know, diseases and certainly eventually dies, the answer you know, should you know, be there is old age, there is disease, and there is death. And obviously you know, that is qu taking quite a different approach. So on many occasions, the Buddha has highlighted the uh, qualities of formations, namely that they are impermanent, suffering, and non-self. The fourth volume of the Samyutta Nikaya, section 28, states all is impermanent, all is suffering, all is non-self. Dhammapada verse 279 states, all phenomena are without a self. Now, what about you know, the self and Nibbana? Is there such a thing as a self 
in Nibbana, what would you say? Yes or no? Anyone? No. No? Uh, and that's correct. There is none. That sense of self falls totally away. So after our exploration, or based on our exploration up to this certain point, it will be much easier to relate to the Buddha's uh, uh, discourse, what is non-self, as recorded, as is recorded in the third volume of the Samyutta Nikaya, in section 23, at Sawati, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, and lay retreatants. Form is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Feeling is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Perception is not uh, myself. And, or is not mine, and this I am not, this is not myself. And the same thing goes for volitional formations and certain consciousness. So in the end, there's nothing that uh, could be said to be um, mine, there's nothing that uh, um, one could identify with as I am, or as myself. The contemplation of this non-self aspect of formations is a really important part of the meditation practice. It is important certainly because it certainly will